Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Telegraph. Podcasts. And your co-pilot will not be familiarising herself with the new rules because she has no intention of obeying them. The subject heading of the email was Plan B and the words in the email were simply bogus, bluff, beastly, bad betrayals. There's no point in just returning to normal, as the government has said with cancer services. We need to return to super normal. Someone said it takes a village to raise a child and the village was shut. During lockdown, the village was shut and he was on his own with his tormentors. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. There are signs that having stoically endured three separate lockdowns, the public's support for harsh anti-COVID restrictions is diminishing. In response to the new Omicron variant, ministers reintroduced compulsory masks on public transport and in shops. Travel controls are back, with compulsory PCR tests plus quarantine when returning from red list countries, a mandatory UK pre-departure test too. Yet after previously solid lockdown support... After almost two years of disruption and a mass vaccination programme, the national mood is shifting. Over two-thirds of voters in England oppose the closure of pubs and restaurants, according to YouGov polling, with three in five rejecting controls on numbers of indoor home visitors. Previously seen as eccentric, even irresponsible, lockdown scepticism is becoming mainstream. Since Omicron emerged in late November, ministers have pledged to act in a measured proportionate manner, The government insists there'll be no repeat of last December's restrictions, which saw Christmas cancelled. Yet, as Planet Normal's being recorded, the government's introducing yet more restrictions, including a return to working from home, a widening of the vaccine passport scheme, an extension of face mask requirements. The reality is, though, much of the public could reject, even ignore further restrictions, certainly while the evidence continues to suggest... Omicron causes only mild symptoms with no recorded deaths. The latest Downing Street scandal, the sight of government insiders laughing and joking about an apparent breach of lockdown rules last Christmas, when the rest of us were making huge sacrifices, has tested the public's patience, perhaps beyond endurance, seriously damaging the social contract. The question now, Alison, isn't if ministers will order yet more lockdown restrictions in response to Omicron, The question, it strikes me, is whether or not they can. (laughs) I'm speechless. I'm speechless. We've just watched, haven't we? We've watched the the Downing Street briefing. Oh, God, shoot me now, Halligan. Shoot me now. (laughs) Fetch my revolver. Get the revolver out. I mean, all I can say about this week is it's a strange week when the, the figure of towering moral authority and scientific responsibility is Vladimir Putin. I mean... (laughs) He literally said we don't have to worry about this Omicron thing because it's basically so mild it's going to act like a vaccine and everything will be fine. And compare and contrast to the crazy reaction of our own political class. I just want to say quickly, I was actually thinking I might not be able to watch Chris Whitty's graphs because, you know, those of us who've been trained to spot the sleight of hand, it's like it's like a very, very dull Tommy Cooper, isn't he? The man of whom you once said, oddly reassuring, reassuringly odd. <laughs> that didn't age very well, did it? That didn't age very well. Anyway, poor Professor Whitty had the task of trying to explain why we suddenly need to activate Plan B, even though, as Professor Sinatra Gupta told us last week, the UK is incredibly well-placed, co-pilot. 
have immense amounts of immunity, both natural immunity from lots of people having had COVID and from vaccine-induced immunity. I think antibodies are in about 96% of the population. We are actually, Boris could have turned around and did his sort of Father Christmas giving us all a present and said, as the Danish Prime Minister said, (laughs) COVID is over, chaps. You know, let's have a cracking Christmas. There's a lot to untangle, Liam, isn't there? So just quickly with the briefing, it's plan B. You'll remember, listeners will remember that Sajid Javid assured us that we were on an irreversible roadmap out of lockdown. The only way measures would ever be reintroduced is if there were about 100,000 cases a day and if there was a a clear threat to the NHS. We'll, We'll have a bit of George later telling us that there is no clear threat to the NHS, but we have basically have gone back to working from home if you can. We know, Liam, all the damage that causes to small businesses, not to mention the domestic abuse. Face masks are extended to theatres and cinemas and restaurants and bars where they make no sense at all because you don't wear them when you're eating and drinking. And then there are going to be these COVID passes, which are going to be mandatory for larger venues. And the Prime Minister told us that this was a proportionate and responsible to move to Plan B. I would say to you, suggest to you, Copilot is disproportionate, hugely damaging, without any basis in science. And your Copilot will not be familiarising herself with the new rules because she has no intention of obeying them. Well, our Planet Normal listeners are nothing if quick on the uptake. And literally while the Prime Minister was speaking... (laughs) Helen emailed us at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. The subject heading of the email was Plan B, and the words in the email were simply bogus, bluff, beastly, bad betrayal. (laughs) That's what Helen thinks. Helen, eh? our (laughs) listeners are all that's standing between me and the revolver. I mean, literally. I think some of our listeners feel the same way about you. (laughs) Honestly, Lim, just tell me, so you know this, you nearly got that Allegra Stratton. <laughs> I didn't nearly get You did. I am, I think, pretty much the only other person in the UK who's ever spoken from the podium. You of have. That, of that two and a half million quid room in the bowels of Downing Street. But can you give listeners quickly now your insider's take? Essentially, a year after the event a very long time. This was leaked, wasn't it? A very hugely damaging. The Prime Minister last week was saying there's never been a party, you know, even if there was a party, the guidance was observed. And suddenly, like this great bomb, doesn't it, explodes and causing immense distress to people because of Allegra Stratton and people in the room, seemed to be having a joke about the measures which had caused such misery, hadn't they, to people who'd had Christmases cancelled, as you said in your introduction. So what was going on there, Liam? Just deconstruct it for us. Well, I agree with you. It's a very bad look for a bunch of clearly very well-educated, privileged people laughing and joking about parties and cheese and wine gatherings at a time when people literally weren't seeing their loved ones, when people were literally exchanging presents on frosty driveways, um, having driven for three hours to see their relatives. I'm a very long way from a government insider, but the various high-ups in government did ask me to come and try out as the Prime Minister's spokesman, if only to pretend that there was an actual competition for the publicly remunerated job, which of course there wasn't because Allegra Stratton was always going to get it. She was clearly on the inside track, very close to many senior figures, not least the Prime Minister's wife. So I was never going to get the job. But when people in Downing Street ring you up and say, do you want to come in and have a chat with us, Liam. No journalist should say no to that, if only for the bants. You go in and, and see what's going on. What I would say is this. I think, I do think public opinion has changed, and I wrote that in The Telegraph earlier this week on the op-ed page on Monday, long before this film of the Downing Street posse cackling to each other was leaked. And I based that on YouGov polling. And guess what? I think your mate Chris Whitty agrees with me. Last week in a little notice statement, he told the the local government association, Chris Whitty talked to the extraordinary ability of the British public to just accept that there are things we collectively have to do to protect one another. He said, it's easier though to be confident of people's response at the beginning than after two years of their lives have been interfered with. Mm. And he questioned in public, Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, if having an extended taste of freedom since July, the public is prepared to give up on our liberties 
once more. So I do think there's an issue here. I do think the leaked film has compounded that and the government's response to it. There are now increasingly extremely smart, well-educated, decent people, you, who are saying publicly, these rules just piss me off now. It literally is one rule for them and one rule for the rest of us. And this is what happens when governments lose that key thing. It's not about power. It's not about rights. It's not about might even. It's consent. It's consent is the key thing. And that's why I said in the opening to this podcast that I think the social contract has been broken pretty badly with these signs of shenanigans and rule breaking. I mean, do we even have to say alleged anymore? I don't think we do. Certainly, there were some parties going on. There are cabinet office investigations going on. I think they're up to four now. But I was thinking, co-pilot, that perhaps Planet Normal could have a business meeting on Saturday, a fictional party with some imaginary wine and cheese. What do you think? <laughs> Maybe we could hire a nightclub and we could sort of, you know, put a photocopier in the corner <laughs> yes. uh, and turn up in ties and, and heeled shoes and, and pretend that we're having a business meeting. You could take dictation, co-pilot Pearson, though I, I, I doubt that you would ever take dictation from me or anyone else. You'd probably plant the pen in my head, point the end first. <laughs> I think I'd be quite good at giving you dictation. But coming back to this press briefing, it looked to me, Chris Whitty was very, very dry-lipped. He looked as quite nervous, as well you might, when you've got almost no evidence to present. He said there's still a high rate of hospitalisations. And then right at the end, he came up with an astonishing graph of cases in South Africa. Now, Liam, we know that we are much vaccinated in this country, tremendous coverage of vaccinations. South Africa is not much vaccinated and has also has a high rate of HIV, which makes people very, very vulnerable. So to come up with this graph showing the soaring cases in South Africa and to imply that it's going to happen here, I think it's insulting. It insults our intelligence. And what What are these measures going to do? So listen, I just want to read you this, which I thought was really fascinating. You know, this brewing antagonism between Dominic Cummings and Boris. So Cummings just posted this on Twitter. He calls Boris the trolley because he basically crashes around. Like a shopping trolley. Like a shopping trolley. Random directions. Yeah, exactly. Cummings said... Any cabinet minister who supports the trolley announcing Plan B today in a lunatic attempt to dead cat the story about the parties, that basically means to, doesn't it, to divert attention away. It's a meeting and you just pull out a dead cat and put it on the table to change the subject. Yeah, any cabinet minister who supports Boris in this is defending the indefensible. Now is the time for the cabinet to take back control and tell the trolley, no, first you must resolve this catastrophe, which you have created. A, how much is this, Liam, about resetting the Johnson government after bad polling over sleaze and corruption? And how terrible would it be to impose restrictions on your people to save your own sorry arse? It's a really serious situation. And we need to remind listeners that the latest statement from the World Health Organization is that even though Omicron is now detected in over 50 countries, almost 60 countries, which is hardly surprising given that the evidence shows already it's more infectious than the currently prominent Delta variant. Not one single person has died, or more accurately, we should say, Alison, because we are sticklers for detail here on Planet Normal. There have been no reported fatalities, there you go, from the Omicron variant. That's a very important statement. Yes, there might be some hospitalizations, but again, so far, the international evidence is that the hospitalizations are short and the symptoms are, quotes, mild. And that's a quote, again, from the WHO. So why are they doing it? What is he, is he, are they seriously doing it because this party's story? I mean, tell me that's not why it is. Tell me that they wouldn't do something so grave to the nation, taking away freedoms again for self-preservation. Tell me, Liam. I don't think it's to divert our attention from a particular story or even a particular set of stories that we can put under the heading sleaze. So Owen Patterson, Shropshire by-election, etc, etc. I think that's a conspiracy theory, if I may say so. What I do think is true 
is that people in government and civil servants, they find it very difficult to give up power. And this is clearly power. It's as simple as that. They can tell themselves, and I'm sure they often do, and many that I've spoken to over the years clearly feel that they are on the side of the angels and they are acting in the common good and they have to make these difficult decisions. And of course, they will be surrounded by scientists who are pretty much all saying the same thing. Whereas if they got out more and had a broader range of scientists, they understand that the science on this is extremely split. The science on how you deal even with COVID-19, which we know does kill people, albeit mainly people who are much older or have pre-existing clinical conditions. The science on that is really split. The Great Barrington Declaration is there. Shinetra Gupta, Martin Koldov, Jay Bhattacharya, many of the world's leading epidemiologists don't think we should have had full lockdown even for COVID-19 which clearly or almost certainly contingent on the evidence we've had so far is far more serious in terms of its symptoms than the Omicron variant. So what we've done here, or what the government has done, is introduced quite severe changes to our lives that will impact our liberties, that will harm lots and lots of businesses that will impact our lives in a serious way on a just-in-case basis. And I think the politician who I've heard speak with most clarity and courage on this in recent days, Alison... Apart from Vladimir Putin. Apart from Vladimir <laughs> Putin. The person I've heard speak with most clarity on this, well, in the House of Commons, is none other than... Theresa May. Yes. Her speech is well worth looking up. Absolutely. Planet Normal listeners should Google Theresa May, House of Commons, Omicron. And she said, and she said it very, very well, that we can't go on on the basis of locking down our society and our economy on a just-in-case basis. There will always be more variants. And whatever you think of the Russian president, and obviously we can discuss the kind of character that he is, when he says the signs are that this is a virus that's a lot less severe than COVID-19, but a lot more infectious and potentially a lot broader in its scope, and that is on balance, a good thing because it can spread herd immunity. He is on very solid scientific ground when he says that. Yes, much more solid scientific ground than Boris. Can I just apologise to listeners? I'm probably sounding, you know, maybe overstating, maybe being a bit a bit more aggressive than I should be. I think we both get very worked up, don't we, when we get these very sad stories. I did spend a couple of days this week digging down into this most distressing case of the little boy in Solihull, Arthur Labinio Hughes, Liam, which is, is haunting the country, isn't it? This six-year-old murdered by his stepmother, tortured, abetted by his father. And I think what I felt Obviously, the the parents were the people who actually dealt the fatal blows and all the deprivation. It was lockdown, Liam, that enabled them to conspire in that absolutely disgusting way. The little boy was not able to go to school. We should never have closed primary schools. So many thousand, you know, they think that there may be a 100,000 ghost children. That's uh, Robert Halfen, the MP's word for them. A whole Wembley Stadium, Liam, of children who have fallen off the school map, okay, during this And period. haven't gone back. Haven't got back. They've got no idea where they are. And when I was researching this piece on Arthur's death, I came across something from the SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, a document of April 2020. And they knew, Liam, they said the wider impact of school closures on children, the risk to vulnerable children's welfare has increased significantly as a result of school closures. The risk of harm and abuse in the home is likely to be higher due to isolation, the most vulnerable will be negatively affected by existing family distress. And the SAGE document concluded, where are these children? How are they being supported and safeguarded? And the answer was, nobody had a bloody clue. Now, I don't take any reintroduction of measures on no good scientific evidence as okay. I don't care for myself. I'm a grown-up. I can manage. I live in a pleasant house in a pleasant town. I mind because these measures are going to affect, aren't they, 
thousands of, pe- of people, of children, of elderly. It's going to scare the elderly again, start the ball rolling. So I do apologise to listeners, but, you know, I, I do feel upset. Can we just have a tiny bit of George to steady us? I think we should, Alison. Be- before we do, let me just say also that I fully agree with you on primary schools. I think the government should have told the teaching unions or the leaders of the teaching unions who often don't represent the teaching rank and file to get stuffed Schools should have stayed open, particularly primary schools. But the government should have said to protect itself from a legal point of view, because, of course, there may be concerns. There may well be teachers with pre-existing medical conditions that do make them vulnerable. Yeah. Fair dues. So teachers with those pre-existing conditions should have been able to say, I don't feel safe. I'm going to stay at home. And that's completely fine. That is not unreasonable at all. But if schools could have been kept open, the vast majority of teachers would have turned up for school. There may have been slight variations. There may not have been a completely full school roster of teachers, but the vast majority of the teaching would have gone ahead. The very, very important supervisory role that school plays would have gone ahead. That Also, the social services role that school plays, keeping an eye on kids. You know the kids that are getting abuse at home you can see it in their eyes you can see it on their little arms and their little legs and on their faces all those things disappeared never again should schools be closed down individual teachers should be able to voluntarily sign themselves off for health reasons no problem whatsoever but never again should schools in their entirety close down No, absolutely. Will you just remind everyone who George is? So George is our incredible inside NHS England source. We never disclose George's identity. George, he or she has full access to the internal data, but we can't as journalists independently verify the numbers that George gives us because by definition, we get them before they're published, if they're published at all, though we absolutely know who George is. We've both met George and we know all about his or her bona fides. We do. So George said this week, overall, there was a slight increase yesterday in the number of COVID patients in hospital to 6,007. That's not very many, Liam, basically. I mean, that's about between 4 and 5% of all hospital beds. There were 799 new admissions, including inpatients who were diagnosed with COVID in hospital. Planet Normal listeners will know that a lot of those are people who go into hospital with other ailments and then they get a positive test. So they're not actually COVID cases strictly. There were 621 COVID patients discharged from hospital. That's excellent news. There are 784 confirmed COVID patients in a critical care bed. That's in ICU. And that is quite high, represents a quarter of the currently available ICU beds and 13% of all current COVID patients. But George says, I stress that the increase in the number of patients is currently very slight indeed. And COVID still represents just 4% of hospital beds. We have been expecting an upturn in all hospital trends for about two weeks now following the increase in reported cases that was observed from 8th of November onwards. Discharges, George said, remember we've had this before, Liam, continue to be a problem due to a shortage of care home beds. And if the overall discharge statistics apply to COVID patients in the same way, there will be something today like 800 COVID COVID patients who are recovered, but who are still in hospital, despite being medically fit to be discharged. And finally, I asked George if there was any sign yet of the Omicron variant having an impact on hospitals. Basically, no. Normally, George says we would expect to see an impact within two weeks of cases starting to increase. But there are some unknowns with Omicron which could affect that. There is a suggestion that the incubation period is shorter, but also the symptoms that have so far been reported are extremely mild. So we don't know if we will even see any impact in hospital admissions. Now that statement, Liam, let's compare that with the Prime Minister saying that reintroducing restrictions today was proportionate and responsible when we were told that the only reason restrictions would be reintroduced would be if there was a significant threat to the NHS. George is telling us at the moment there is no significant threat from Omicron to the NHS. But we will, of course, ask George to keep us posted in the next couple of weeks to see if they manage to get one case in the hospital. 
How interesting that the numbers you cite, of course, include COVID-19 patients. Yes. And I'm looking at the excellent ONS, Office for National Statistics, coronavirus dashboard, as I do every day, self-confessed nerd, just done a little sum. We love your nerdy. (laughs) Hospital bed occupancy at the moment is less than one-fifth what it was at the peak of the pandemic last winter. And obviously, we're coming into peak period now. There is no sign. So far, no sign of hospital bed occupancy increasing to any significant degree as a result of this variant. Now, again, that may change. I'm not saying Omicron is definitely not a very serious virus. I'm not saying it isn't as fatal or even more fatal than COVID-19, which is still a very, very low level of fatality, by the way. I'm saying that we just don't know, and I'm agreeing with Theresa May, that there will be many, many variants. The sequencing of viruses has absolutely increased exponentially across the world in recent months for obvious reasons. Everybody's looking for variants all the time. There's far more brain power and lab capacity being thrown at this issue than there ever was in human history. So, of course, we will find variants, but we can't keep closing down our economy and our society, as the former Prime Minister Theresa May said, in response to every single new variant, before we know that it has a serious impact on lives and on hospitalizations, And none of that applies so far to Omicron. No, but we do know just in the last 24 hours or so that people think it's not evading the vaccines. I think Pfizer has come out and been very strong about three doses of the jab being a good protection against Omicron. I mean, I think it would, it would be really interesting, won't it? Because we have got this North Shropshire by-election next week. We've seen a couple of Conservative councillors moving over one to the Reform Party, one to the Claim party could be a big chance, couldn't it, for an expression from some Conservative voters of what they feel about all these shenanigans? It could be, Alison. And that by-election falls next Thursday, the 16th of December, which, funnily enough, is the date of the next episode of Planet Normal. (laughs) We'll be having a fictional wine and cheese party. To celebrate... You're all invited. We'll send you an imaginary invitation and you just submit your business card. There won't be any trouble at all. And anyway, Halligan's so rich, he can pay the £10,000 fine. (laughs) Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As the Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at the Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, the idea that lockdowns caused collateral damage to society is increasingly mainstream. One of the themes of Planet Normal has been the impact of the NHS's strong focus on COVID, which has seen non-COVID treatments often marginalised. Earlier this month, the National Audit Office brought out a report demonstrating that up to 750,000 cancer referrals that should have happened didn't happen, in part due to the lower number of face-to-face GP appointments. Now, Alison, someone who feels very strongly about the decline of NHS cancer care during this pandemic is Professor Gordon Wishart, one of our leading oncologists, a world-class breast cancer surgeon and a senior lecturer at Imperial College. He is our latest Planet Normal stowaway. Professor Gordon Wishart, thanks a lot for joining us here on Planet Normal To what extent do you think we've underplayed the impact of lockdown, the impact of the NHS focusing on COVID to the extent it has on other non-COVID conditions, particularly cancer? Well, I think certainly the government and the NHS have significantly underplayed this, what we're now calling the cancer backlog. It seems a terrible term, but you know, there are so many men and women out there with a missed cancer diagnosis. But but this is not a new thing. The Joint 
all-party parliamentary group that wrote a cancer summit report with input from lots of clinicians and scientists and cancer charities and professional bodies, really put that as, as one of the main findings of its report back in May of this year uh, and, and said that at that point, the government had yet to acknowledge the backlog, far less the scale of the backlog. And, and sadly, that still seems to be the case, Liam. Aside from COVID, aside from this pandemic, Professor Wishart, when I look at OECD studies, the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, when I look at health systems across the advanced countries, while the NHS scores very well under some headings, it doesn't score well under things like cancer survival rates compared to other advanced countries that spend the amount of money as we do on healthcare. Why is that? I think that's an excellent question, Liam, because, you know, what you've just said has been reported by Cancer Research UK, but also from a, a number of different studies that have looked at cancer survival across different, you know, high income countries. The first thing that leaps out is that the NHS is a system that runs pretty much at full capacity the whole time. So there's no extra resource to step up at a time like this when you know, we're seeing a, a number of cases come forward now for diagnosis that could have been diagnosed during the pandemic. So I, I think that there's a lot of friction in the NHS because it's running at, at, at full capacity the whole time. You know, in, in my own career as a breast cancer surgeon, I was always really disappointed that overall we were scoring less well in terms of breast cancer survival compared to countries like Finland and Norway and, and Sweden. But actually, we, we, we looked at breast cancer survival in the east of England and we found that it was very good up until about age 65. And thereafter, it began to fall off a cliff. And, and so I think, you know, one of the things we need to seriously look at is this under provision or lack of access for older people to optimal cancer treatment. So, so I think those are the two things that, that leap out immediately. I know you're a big supporter of the NHS and you've spent much of your life working in the NHS. But as an oncologist, how do you feel when you're constantly told repeatedly on a loop by almost all our media all the time that the NHS is the best in the world? It, it is incredibly frustrating, especially since we, you know, we have other agencies now questioning that. And, and also when we see the NHS falling down league tables in terms of national public health care systems. I kind of sense frustration throughout the NHS fraternity and certainly amongst my colleagues that, that still work in the NHS. You know, if we take someone running a breast cancer unit, for instance, they might have a set of resources that allows them to see perhaps five or 600 patients a month on time, people with urgent symptoms. But then if there's a huge spike in referrals, as often happens during Breast Cancer Awareness Month, that there is no extra resource to see those patients in a timely way. And for many years, all the cancer targets, all the waiting time targets have relied on the goodwill of staff, whether that's doctors or nurses or other specialists, to do extra clinics to, to mop up. And I think what's happened is that the goodwill has gone now. It's been destroyed. And, and so this is, this is what we're left with now. Really no ability to turn up the activity levels when we're under enormous pressure as we are at, at present. In the last financial year, the NHS cost more as a percentage of GDP than pretty much any healthcare system anywhere else in Europe. Is it still underfunded or do we need to reform it in some way in order to get more bang for our buck as taxpayers? I certainly think it needs reform and, uh, you know, certainly speaking from a cancer perspective. I think if we look at cancer, we know that it was failing before the pandemic in the NHS. And, and that was really due to inadequate early cancer detection and a lack of access to optimal treatment and, and a shortage of cancer specialists. And that's not changed. So, there's no point in just returning to normal, as the government has said, with cancer services. We need to return to super normal. We need to create an environment where we can increase capacity. And I think that probably needs a, a national cancer strategy. I think it needs political oversight and, and probably a, a health minister that is just specifically appointed for cancer services. Someone who can stand up for the cancer community and, and, and get the additional funding that is required because there is very good evidence of historic underinvestment in diagnostic kit, in IT, 
in radiotherapy and other cancer treatments, and also in workforce. We need an immediate increase in the workforce by about 20% to even come close to clearing the backlog. Let's focus now specifically on the pandemic. How would you judge in general the state of UK cancer care in terms of referrals and treatment and ongoing after-treatment care during this pandemic? Well, I've I've been following the numbers of urgent referrals, the the numbers of cancers coming forward for diagnosis and treatment all all the way through the pandemic. And, And it's really very sad because everything that's happened until now was predictable and in April last year. So it was very obvious that if you pause the screening programmes, if you told people to stay at home and they didn't go to their GP, we were just going to see huge numbers of people who, who weren't referred. Uh, and I think Macmillan is perhaps the most recent report that you know now tells us there are over 740,000 missed urgent GP referrals since the beginning of lockdown, which is just an enormous number. And of course, that translates into their estimate of 47,000 people with a missed cancer diagnosed until now. Um, and, and that's about right. Those numbers equate because in terms of people with symptoms coming to clinics, you would certainly in breast and other cancers, you would expect about one in 15 of those to be diagnosed with cancer. And, and those numbers equate to that. And, and so all of this predictable way back, so it could have easily been mitigated by just putting measures in place right at the beginning to protect cancer treatment and diagnosis. I think that 740,000 missed referrals was from the National Audit Office, though you're right, of course, Macmillan Cancer Support has highlighted since that NAO report came out the impact of those missed referrals, uh, the increase in death rates. Professor Carol Sikora, another of our distinguished oncologists, a previous planet normal stowaway. He says the scale of the cancer crisis in the UK is nothing short of catastrophic. Every missed diagnosis is a grandfather, a mother, a friend, a colleague. Do you think that's fair? I have to agree exactly with what Carl said. I think just in the last few days, he he described this near 50,000 people as a, a football stadium full of people who've not yet been diagnosed. And I think it's that kind of visual imagery that really puts it in perspective. And that's just such an enormous number of people on on a scale that most of us can't even comprehend. A lot of these will be young people. I mean, you know, you're a breast cancer specialist. We're talking about young mums here with children. We are. And and we're talking about the whole scale of of, of people. You mentioned women and, and women have been disproportionately disadvantaged by lockdown and the cancellation of the screening programmes. So, for instance, you know, the NHS screening programmes have for breast, bowel and cervical cancer. So, you know, women are used to getting screening from all of those. And it is, it's going to affect the elderly as well. And, and perhaps it's the elderly who have that, you know, long feeling of not wanting to bother the doctor. You know, if they're discouraged from seeing their GP, they'll, they'll perhaps stay at home. And we've had constant excess deaths at home for months and months now. And again, that's something else that's not really been discussed at any great length. And, and it is possible that some of these missed cancers, have, people with missed cancers have actually died already, either at home or in the accident and emergency department. It's only in the fullness of time that we'll really understand exactly where all these missed cancers have gone or, or are going. As one of our leading oncologists, Professor Wishart, as an active cancer surgeon, if you like. Tell us about your experience of pandemic. We know the NHS made a really blanket decision to focus on COVID. What does that COVID focus meant for practitioners like you in other hugely important parts of our healthcare system? Because of this complete focus on COVID, the the workforce were completely deployed to deal with that. It took a number of doctors and anaesthetists away from cancer treatment. And so because the private sector had been requisitioned, apart from a few locations throughout England, largely those private hospitals stayed empty and unused at huge expense to the NHS. And and I think that that resource could have been much better used and could have been kept COVID-free and could have kept cancer diagnosis and treatment going 
in, in a much more universal way. There were pockets of excellence. I, I run a, a national network of, of one-stop breast clinics now, and we were able to talk to the consultants on the ground weekly to ask, can you do a face-to-face consultation? Can you still do all the investigations at the first visit? And, and by doing that, we were able to, to, to keep some activity going. But actually, most of the cancer surgeons were very frustrated because they, they were doing nothing for months and they could see that they were going to have this enormous backlog to deal with. Do you think the NHS overreacted when it came to COVID? Yes, we've had a, a world-class vaccination programme, but you know the NHS has helped to deliver that, but they didn't generate the vaccines, did they? I don't want to diss the NHS, but do you think they overreacted in terms of focusing on COVID to the expense of many other non-COVID treatments? I'm not really sure that they had any choice. It, it was you know, a government-led decision. I think for, for some of us, the gap between the government and the NHS is kind of narrowed. And I think you know, this, this was enforced upon the NHS. Do you think ministers overreacted then, Gordon, from a clinical point of view where you sit? I'm not asking you to make political comments, but do you think wherever the order came from, the, the focus on COVID was too intense and other non-COVID areas of treatment were unduly neglected? I can understand that when it first happened, when the pandemic first broke, that, that, that there was a feeling of panic and, and an uncertainty about what was going to happen. So I, I kind of forgive the government and, and ministers at that point. But from April onwards, people like me, people like Richard Sullivan, a whole group of people were warning that unless time-critical conditions such as cancer were actually managed, then we would see a number of deaths that, that might even challenge the total number of deaths from COVID. And, and, and that is still possible when you add cancer to things like cardiac disease, dementia, diabetes, all the other conditions that really require urgent investigation and treatment at a certain time point. So I think from April onwards, their ability to escape blame for what has happened just reduces hugely. And I think the fact that the joint APG Cancer Summit report was submitted to them in May, six months ago now, and has yet to be acknowledged. It's, it's just shocking. And I cannot understand why, with so many people from, from so many different parts of the healthcare industry are all giving the same message that there's still been no response. You're talking there about April 2020, of course, about a month into lockdown. And you mentioned also the parliamentary group report into cancer that the government has yet to acknowledge. And you're saying, Professor Wishart, unless I'm misunderstanding you, that in your view, the number of deaths caused by lockdown is now challenging, even exceeding the number of deaths that lockdown may have saved, aside from all the mental health, educational, inconvenience, business implications of lockdown. I think that's right. It will be in the fullness of time that we get a full disclosure of of exactly what the number of non-COVID deaths has been. But it is possible that those two numbers could be very, very similar. What do you want to see happen? And how do you feel that the government has yet to acknowledge that all-party parliamentary group report? A very, very authoritative report. I've seen it myself from a number of cancer specialists, yourself included. It must be quite galling that you haven't even had a letter saying thank you. It's really the acknowledgement that we were all looking for. It was almost the, the one thing that everybody who contributed to that report said right at the outset. It was a tremendous piece of work and it shows how you can harness experience uh, and advice in a really non-political way. It was excellently chaired by Tim Farron. The former Lib Dem leader. Absolutely. There was no political point scoring at all. It was roll your sleeves up. He wanted to know what all of us thought. And, and I think he produced you know, one of the best reports that I've seen in a long time about cancer services in the UK. So it's incredibly frustrating that it's still yet to be acknowledged. And this mantra that we're just we're returning to normal, is, is nobody's believing that anymore. And certainly one of the things that came out in the Macmillan press release recently was that the number of people who think cancer services will remain an NHS priority is, is, is dropping. And it's now down to just over 50%. I think that's really a very sad reflection on their response to the pandemic in terms of cancer services. 
Professor Wishart, you're a very modest man. You're a softly spoken man, but you are a world-class oncologist. You got 30 seconds in a lift with the Prime Minister. What do you say? Please acknowledge the backlog. Please involve experts in trying to help you sort it out. Appoint a minister who has full responsibility for delivering cancer services. They should have a body, a multidisciplinary team of people working with them to advise the government on planning how to tackle the cancer backlog and producing a cancer strategy that is fit for purpose for now and for the future. I must say, Professor Wisher, I think behind your softly spoken Scottish burr, I think there's quite a lot of anger in your heart at what's happening to our cancer services during and post-lockdown. I have to agree with you. I've spent my whole career trying to make incremental improvements to cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment, cancer survival, and to see them all just ebbing away during the last 18 months is it just heartbreaking. It's for all those people out there that are suffering or don't even know yet that they have an underlying cancer. It's just unforgivable, in my opinion. Well, Professor Wishart, thanks a lot for staying away with me and Alison Pearson to Planet Normal. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, Liam, that was a quietly devastating interview, wasn't it? I think, as you say, Gordon Wishart has this you know, wonderful, mellifluous Scottish voice. Input. I love input. But what he was saying, you know, beneath those dulcet tones were one shocking thing after the next. I had no idea that women have been disproportionately disadvantaged by the lack of screening programmes. Of course, we depend on breast cancer and cervical smear testing. And then there was that unbelievable thing. He said that this very important APG Cancer Summit report, which was submitted to the government in May, and these eminent men and women have had no reply from the government. I mean, absolutely jaw-dropping. It's pretty astonishing. You've got an all-party parliamentary group which brings together people from across the political spectrum. You know, whatever you think of Tim Farron, he's good at things like that, talking, bringing people together, the former Lib Dem leader. It was a non-partisan, cross-party report with more than a sprinkling of world-class people trying to say something, put something into the public domain with authority. Helpfully, they didn't do massive press releases looking for attention. They were trying to perform a public service. All of it pro bono, of course. That's what APPG groups are. And the government can't even ask a highly paid civil servant to write a letter to say, we got your report. Well, basically, that amounts to a middle finger, doesn't it? It's a two-word response, the second of which is off. Now on to our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We had a bumper crop this week and it's really, really hard to choose. But here are a couple that I really like that felt very topical and appreciative of a previous guest on the rocket. This is from Andrew. Dear Liam and Alison, thank you so much for bringing back Professor Shunetra Gupta. She gave the clearest explanation I have heard yet about where we are in all of this. Here are my takeaways from her interview. One, zero COVID is an impossible dream. Two, every new virus goes through the epidemic phase and then settles long term into the endemic phase. We are now well into the endemic phase. Three, the only known mechanism by which we reach the endemic phase is by means of herd immunity. Most of the population is now immune, either because of vaccination or because of having had COVID. Four, looking to the future, there may be an increase in infections again, but this will be because of either a decay in immunity or because of seasonal it will not be because of new variants emerging. Five, Omicron is not a concern. Now that nearly all of the vulnerable have immunity, the rest of us can just get on with our lives as normal. Ha ha. There is no justification for further NPIs, non-pharmaceutical interventions. And since Omicron is already here, there is no justification for bringing back travel restrictions. Too late, Andrew. It all makes such sense to me. How come it doesn't yet make sense to our government or even our media? Do keep up your important work, you two. Can I just say, I love it when you guide us through a, an acronym. 
<laughs> NPI, non-pharmaceutical intervention. <laughs> not everybody knows Halligan. Even I'm not quite sure. Nosocomial, zoonotic. We haven't had nosocomial for a while. Orthogonal. And Anne says, Anne says, three cheers for Shanetra Gupta. Hooray! Hooray! Who understands immunology and epidemiology better than the three ghouls and their henchmen, Sage et al., behind the government. <laughs> Quite right. Like the three stooges, aren't they, really? I've worked in the virology lab, says Anne, done a bit of immunology and epidemiology myself, although I would hardly call myself an expert, not by a long way. But if I understand what Shanetra is talking about, then so must other scientists and they are ignoring the most basic information of those branches of science. I can only suppose, being charitable, that the majority of them have been scared witless by Sage's shenanigans. The good news is that Shinetra Gupta has a functioning brain unclouded by the rubbish that has been spouted over the last 18 months and counting. Hooray for Shinetra Gupta, that's what I say. Here's one from Wayne. He sent Planet Normal a letter he wrote to his MP, Philip Dunn, who I think is MP for Ludlow up there in Shropshire, where there's soon to be a by-election in the northern part of that part of the country. I can't believe that I'm writing to you, said Wayne to Philip Dunn, yet again about COVID restrictions placed on all our lives, including those of my young children who for the second year are now unnecessarily having their Christmas activities cancelled at school. Cases are down, writes Wayne. Deaths are down and hospitalizations are down. And the new variant, according to the South African doctor that discovered it, is a mild illness similar to a cold. What's happened to the idea that we will be learning to live with COVID if every time a variant's discovered, of which there will be many, we introduce further restrictions, quotes, just in case. All it's done is made already frightened people panic, leading to pointless cancellations of important parts of people's lives. Whatever Boris Johnson says, I will never wear a mask again or go along with any of these idiotic restrictions, writes Wayne, which have time and time again shown to be wholly ineffective at, quote, controlling the virus. Not just ineffective, but also damaging of people's lives, health and the economy. I think the reintroduction of masks on school pupils is particularly concerning with an absolute absence of evidence it will do any good whatsoever and well-documented negative impacts on children's health and their education. In my opinion, Wayne writes to his MP, it's nothing more than a state-sponsored child abuse and it must end. I'm afraid any patience or understanding I may once have had with this government and the Tory party has now completely evaporated. This seems no longer the party of individual freedoms and economic responsibility, more like the party of never-ending authoritarian restrictions, which have impeded every single life in this country now for nearly two years, cost us all hundreds of billions and still ended up with what's seemingly the most drawn-out pandemic in human history. I'd suggest the government should focus more on the backlog of thousands of cancer patients. With apparently 740,000 fewer cancer referrals made by GPs since last April, that's that NAO report we talked about, Alison, which will also certainly cause far more loss of life at far younger ages than the Omicron variant ever will. This government won't even take the unscientific vaccine passports off the table, a completely un-British, unconservative policy that, if introduced, will have long-lasting implications for the freedoms of my children. I just can't believe that you as a Conservative MP can possibly support such an idea. I've voted Conservative more times than not in my life, but I vow I will never do so again after what this government has done to this once great country, signed Wayne. Well, Liam, I think Wayne may be speaking for a lot of the Conservative grassroots on this particular day with all those measures he was complaining about possibly coming back into force. This is from Tom. I wrote this week about the tragic case of Arthur Labinho Hughes, the wonderful little six-year-old boy who was murdered by his stepmother during the lockdown. And Tom says... Perhaps it's because I've got my own children now, but this whole tragic story has been almost unbearable for me of all the now blindingly obvious reasons against ever, ever allowing our society to be shut down again. This is the one that should stand there front and centre as a permanent and horrifyingly indelible testament to our abject moral failure as a society to protect those children who needed us most. More than any other group in society, children like Arthur and Christ knows how many others have borne the terrible brunt of our fear, our panic, our brainless compliance and our crushingly supine indifference towards the government and institutions that, instead of protecting them, 
criminally discharged themselves of all responsibility and failed them utterly, we should all be ashamed. Quite agree with you, Tom. You know what, Alison? We try and keep planet normal, light and fluffy, don't we? We try and laugh at the situation that we're in. We try and entertain our listeners. But some of the emails we get are just some of the most incredibly powerful writing I've ever come across. And just from ordinary people. It, I find it very moving, I have to say. I think that the story of Arthur, Liam, has really had a, a haunting impact on millions of people in the country. I think it was the the fact that, as we've said, you know, all his lifelines were cut during lockdown. I mean, someone said it takes a village to raise a child and the village was shut during lockdown. The village was shut and he was on his own with his tormentors. And I think that's, you know, incredibly painful. And I agree with Tom that we must never, ever close the schools again and leave children at the mercy of um, people that poor Arthur was condemned to spend his last days with. This is one from Claire, not her real name. Claire is Planet Normal's GP who writes to us. We know she is. We don't give her name away, but she's been a very useful and interesting contributor to Planet Normal, not only as one of our guests, but also as somebody who writes to us often. It seems, writes Claire, that this new variant is good news if South African doctors are correct. If more transmissible but mild symptoms, this is very good indeed. Lots of people will catch it, get robust and long-lasting natural immunity, the fastest route to herd immunity, and end this fiasco. Thus, no need to panic. No need for any change in restrictions. I'm afraid the government will panic, however, because they have no understanding of immunology. At least this time, Professor John Bell and others they listen to have said no need to panic. They still feel that they have to do something, though. Personally, I think it's all designed to push the flagging booster program, as quite a number of people are declining their third jab. And it's disgraceful to bribe GPs with £12 a jab, taking them away from our GP work, which is overwhelmingly busy, when all the people who trained as vaccinators are not being used and there's a great shortage of GPs. It all makes no sense to me, as usual. (laughs) Indeed. And we've got two emails from slightly older listeners. Rosemary says, I am 74 and supposedly vulnerable, but I am also the grandmother of eight. I have never supported school closures and have written twice to my MP stating my concerns. As an intelligent adult, I can protect myself as I see fit and I do not need children to be deprived and even placed at risk to protect me. I have been shocked and saddened by the number of older people who consider their lives to be more important than the welfare of children and young people. And Sandra says... Alison, my 84-year-old mother is shocked and saddened by your article on poor little Arthur. She says she feels such sorrow and shame that so many children have suffered and still are suffering to protect her and other elderly and vulnerable adults from a disease that is a benign condition to the vast majority of our society. It cannot continue. Here's one from Adam. I reckon they had that Downing Street party because they knew the risks from the virus are vastly exaggerated and they knew the restrictions are ineffectual. So I know, let's reintroduce the restrictions in Plan B again. Only in clown land. We have had some wonderful reviews, Halligan. Not all from the Halligan Irish diaspora. (laughs) Caro says... Thank heavens for this weekly dose of wonderful common sense. Alison and Liam helped to reassure my husband and I that we are not the only ones who think there is another way for the current situation to be handled. Wonderful guests and input from George, providing an entertaining and educational hour that we look forward to. Please keep up your great work. We certainly will. And this is from Sass. Oh, thank goodness. Planet Normal seriously stops me losing the plot, thinking that the whole world has gone totally bonkers do leave us more reviews (laughs) on apple itunes wherever you're listening to this it helps others to find us so the planet normal family can grow i hate to say this halligan but the whole world has gone totally bonkers which is why we're spending all our time (laughs) circling the planet from a distance in the little tin can the rocket of right the rocket of right thinking the flying refuge (laughs) of reasoned views and that's it from planet normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason Email of the week. It's Alison's turn. Yes, I think it's got to go to Wayne for his marvellous trumpeting email to his poor local MP. If you enjoy Planet Normal, 
do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It does help other people to find us. And every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. Just find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it and I'll reply from 11am to noon. It'll be great today because we're going to be talking about all the amazing things that Professor Gordon Wishart said to Liam. Do keep emailing us. And if you'd like to, ring the Telegraph's charity hotline on December the 12th. That's a Sunday. Alison and I will both be at work at Telegraph Towers in our Christmas jumpers. (laughs) And if you ring up and pledge some money to our designated charities, you might even get to talk to us, you lucky people. If you give enough money, Liam promises not to sing Little Donkey. Okay, (laughs) I'll hold him to that. <laughs> Little donkey. Here we go. In the dusty road. <laughs> and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal <laughs> and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampitt, and our editor Theodora Leludis. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.